0: Hello, and welcome to another Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. Today, I am sitting alone. This never happens. Whenever I start an episode of this podcast, I'm sitting with someone or over the phone with someone who has done something remarkable. They have gotten through the impossible to endure. They have faced death or loss or an insurmountable challenge. They have made the hardest choice or they've adapted to a change in their life that they never could have foreseen. And today I'm here to reflect on those 15 interviews that we've had so far. 15 different conversations about how to live this confusing, challenging, frustrating, glorious life that God has given us. And I thought that it would be wise before we go on to any future episodes to pause and consider where we have been. I recently heard a author on the topic of grief talk about the stages of loss. His name is David Kessler and he is Uh, an author who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the founder of the modern hospice ideology. She didn't start hospice, but she's the one who realized that we weren't refusing to allow people to acknowledge when they were dying. We, We just tried to keep curing them of their illness right till the very end. And she's the one who talked about there being different aspects to someone's loss, what's been turned into the stages of loss. And many people say that it's not fair to call them stages because they don't happen all in a perfect order. They don't happen according to a schedule. There's no way that people can know what to expect next. But it is important, perhaps, for us to acknowledge that there are very common experiences that people who go through challenges face and in the classic formulation it is first denial then anger then bargaining then depression and then finally acceptance so when you go through something hard it's very natural let's take death as an example when you first hear, I have terrible news, there was a car accident and this person has died. You say, no, no way, that's impossible. I was just talking to him yesterday. That's impossible, he could be dead. Are you sure? Are you sure it was him? Are you sure it was a fatal accident? Are you sure he's not just in a coma? All of those things are immediate thoughts that many of us have. Another thing that we go through is anger why him? He was just getting his life back on track. He was just figuring things out. He was just able to, to find his way. This was finally where he was, he was figuring out the path forward. And now this, or something different, like there are so many jerks in the world and this was a really good person. Why do the good die young? Then there's bargaining. Lord, make this not be true. Just make this not be true. If there's, a, bring if you bring them back. If you make this just a dream, then I will go to church every day for the rest of my life. I pr- I will give you my life. I will do whatever you want. Bargaining can take other forms too. Trying to uh, imagine, well, I'll just pretend that he's on vacation. I'm not going to have to face this death. I'm just gonna, I'm going to pretend that he's somewhere else or that we broke up or whatever. Then comes depression. That one doesn't need much explanation, especially if it's involving a loss. Nobody needs to be explained why you get depressed. But then there's the stage of acceptance, which is when, although your grief may not have gotten any smaller, you expand to be able to carry it. The fact that you're able to carry it doesn't mean it's necessarily easy. But acceptance means it's not as hard as it once was in the sense that you're no longer struggling against it. You're no longer thinking that if you resent it enough, you can stop it from being true. But this author said that there is another stage of loss, and that is finding the meaning. After you've reached some form of, okay, this happened. That's what acceptance essentially says is, I acknowledge that this happened. It is real. This did happen. This is what is going on. When you get to that point, you have a chance to then think about what this could mean. What it could mean in the big picture. Why did this happen? If you're a believer in God. Why did God allow this? Or if not that you can understand why God would allow it or plan it, at least here's how I can see this benefiting my life. Here's how I know that I will be different and better because of it. Some people would even say at some point, here's why I wouldn't change this even if I could. Here's why I choose to accept that this happened because I know that the meaning is worthwhile. I remember one author also saying the priest Ronald Rolheiser, who's a wonderful author, he said that for the Christian, the most important question in life is not, am I happy? Happiness is not the bottom line in a Christian's life. He said, Definitely, we want to to experience joy. Followers of Jesus, believers in God should experience joy. But what he says is the ultimate question in life is not, am I happy? Jesus on the cross did not ask himself, am I happy? Because the answer would have been no on Good Friday. Absolutely not. Happy? He says, though, that Good Friday was the most beautiful day in the history of the world in what it meant for how much God loves us, in how it expressed total self-giving, holding nothing back, refusing to return violence for violence, forgiving people as they commit the crime against you. He says the most, in question, the most important question in the life of a Christian is not, am I happy? It's, is my life meaningful Not, am I happy, but is my life meaningful? I find that so moving and impressive. So I think one of the things that I've noticed about these 15 conversations that have been posted is every single one of these people has been willing to wrestle with the meaning of the experience that they had. For many of them, the experiences they had were excruciating, terribly painful, life-changing, agonizing, awful, just plain awful. But they were able to find, I now have more empathy for others because of this. I'm a wiser person. I'm a kinder person. I I don't turn away from other people's suffering. I move toward because I know the depth of sorrow that someone who is suffering experiences. I know the desire that people who are suffering have to connect with someone who cares. So I think it would be interesting for us to take a look at some of the themes that have come up and some of the the golden moments in these interviews. Now, I do not have a producer or a staff for doing these. As you can imagine, you probably can picture what this looks like. This is a very organic, homegrown, grassroots podcast. I do have a wonderful production assistant who I want to thank publicly. Kate Kanopka, we love you. You're incredible. Kate is the owner, along with her husband, of Red's Restaurant in Kukasaki, which is a profile of endurance all on its own. Red's, in the beginning of coronavirus, I walked in the day that Red's had to lay off its entire waitstaff. I... Cannot believe the pain in Kate's face the day that that happened. I will tell you that the thing that she told them that moved me so much is, not knowing what the future would hold, she said, I will never let any one of you go hungry. I will never let a single one of you go hungry. You can always eat with us. You will always have a place at the table here. And I am so happy to tell you that all these months later, she's hired them all and they've reinvented Reds. The takeout offerings that they have now are incredible. They've been able to reopen their dining room at reduced capacity and they built a whole pavilion outside where they can serve people in this beautiful outdoor environment with seagrass blowing. It's just wonderful. I'll see if maybe she and Joe would like to talk about how they endured through that because it really was remarkable. Everyone in town is talking about how Reds and some other restaurants here have just figured it out with incredible ingenuity and class and integrity. Well, Kate is a production assistant for this. She's actually the one who said, Father, I want to help you out with this. And so she downloaded Podbean. She's the one who got this put on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. She's the one who uploads it every week. And so Kate, I am so grateful to you. I'm so grateful to you and I thank you and all of our listeners thank you for making this possible. I have to say that um, if Kate weren't a full-time restaurateur and a mom who's about to send her son off to college, her only child off to college at Susquehanna University, and uh, yeah, he's somebody that we just think the world of and, and, and love with our whole heart. He's a great, great, great kid. Thank you, Zachary, for enriching our lives with your life. But if she weren't that busy, that busy, then she probably would figure out how to help get clips of all of these conversations into a retrospective. She would probably work with me to find a clip of of Mary Jane Persico saying this and Alan King saying that, and Father Dave Noon saying this. I bet I can picture her working on a project like that. And if we had a production person here, if there was a producer that worked on this, if we had a studio, I'm sure that would happen. But, you know, I think instead I'd like to just savor these moments with you by recounting them for you. All of these clips are available to be heard if you go back to the conversation. So if I say something about a conversation that you never got to hear about, I would encourage you to go hunt that out because there's a reason why that spoke to you. There's something going on in your soul that would be fed by going back to that. So I'm really, i really very aware of the power hidden in some of these interviews, and I just want to encourage you to go find them. And you know what? Maybe someday we will have the time or we'll have a volunteer who would like to take clips of these conversations and turn them into an incredible mosaic of wisdom. But for now, I'd like to talk to you about moments out of these 15 conversations that really touched me. So I'd like to talk about how some people were given something in their life to carry, and other people had something taken from them. Some people were put with a choice that made their lives at a crossroads, put them in the the fork of, of the road of life that is so hard to figure out. Some of them had an experience that changed their life forever. Others of them had to walk with condition or a circumstance in their life that they could not escape. And I think all of these groups of people have something powerful for us. Let's start by talking about the group that had someone taken from them and had to figure out how to move forward after someone had been taken or something had been taken. I'm thinking about Caroline Lewis, the 24-year-old Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine who talked to us about what it felt like in mid-March to be ripped out of her assignment right in the middle of it with 12 hours of notice on a, on a weekend day so that she couldn't even say goodbye to the students at the school where she was a full-time volunteer and teacher, she couldn't finish the renovation job that she had begun, where she tore apart a classroom and then left it in ruins and intended to finish the renovation. When she left, the US grant money left too, and so there it was, left behind. She talked about how on the flight home, some of the Peace Corps volunteers rang a ceremonial bell to represent the end of their time in Peace Corps she couldn't bring herself to do it because she was supposed to be there for what was going to be another at least six months, but that was going to turn into a whole other year. She knew it. She knew it. She'd already basically made the decision. Caroline Lewis talked to us about that and she explained that there was a paradox in her response. I asked her how she was getting through this and what she said was, you have to be gentle with yourself. You have to allow yourself to have bad days and be depressed. You have to allow yourself to rest knowing that you've been through a trauma. She said, but you also don't give into it. You don't let that be your new identity. You don't become a sad sack or a Debbie Downer. You make plans for the future. You accept that your life is being completely reordered from what you thought it was and you mourn that and you rest in that, but you don't stay there. And I thought this wisdom of the paradox of that from a 24-year-old who gave this interview from her quarantine Airbnb when she had just gotten taken back to the United States and was in the middle of just the most isolating, sad, miserable experience her boyfriend that she had met in the Peace Corps, who she was in a very serious relationship with, was whisked back to another part of the country and was not able to see him And all these many months. She's been dealing with that. I am happy to give you a little update on, on Caroline. She is currently, as this is recorded, driving cross country. She got a full scholarship to the University of Arizona as a former Peace Corps volunteer. And she is going to be studying international relations and putting some of what she learned in the Peace Corps into her human development work that she plans to do with the rest of her life. So, Caroline, we're so proud of you. And thank you for being willing to talk to us during your sojourn in the pit in the Valley of Darkness. I'm thinking of Gina Donovan a woman who spoke to us about her very, very loving relationship with her husband, Ray, and about how Ray died so suddenly. He was there one minute and gone the next, and she tried to reorder her life, but she realized that she wasn't just missing Ray. In his absence, she couldn't find God either. She couldn't sense God's presence any longer, and she talked about how sad it was. She said two things in her, in her interview that I am thinking about now. One of them is she spoke to all of the other widows and widowers out there and said, your loss is terrible, and it is unique to you, and only you know how awful and sad it is. She said, but it is also good for you to know and important to know that this happens every day all over the world. This is happening all the time in many, many places. And so she said, while what you're going through is terrible, you will get through it because others before you have. She said, don't start doubting that you will get through it. She said, you will. It takes faith and courage to know that, but you will, you will you will. Such a powerful statement. The other thing that I'll never forget from her interview was the realization that it is her loss that makes her a powerful minister in the bereavement ministry that our parish has to families who are in the middle of having a loss to a funeral. It is remarkable to see how this ministry touches families. And Gina is often one of the people greeting people when they come to the funeral and being there to give them a tissue or a program or to hold the door for them. And we talked about how when people who are grieving look in her eyes without knowing anything about her story, they can somehow tell this woman knows. They can feel it. They can sense it they are experiencing her loss and they feel the deep solidarity that she knows. You can do the bereavement team ministry if you have not suffered the kind of loss that Gina has. But there's no one who can do the level of connection that someone like Gina can because only someone who's been there can really silently communicate telepathically, I'm with you. They say we can't take someone somewhere where we haven't been. Gina's been there and I'm so grateful for her interview. I am thinking of the wonderful and holy Mary Jane Persico. Boy, would she hate hearing me say that. She would say, oh father, I'm just a simple woman with a simple faith. I remember her in her beautiful, cherished interview talking about what heaven would be like to her. She thinks about heaven a lot because she lost a young son in his 20s back in 1997 who died when he fell asleep at the wheel coming back from the third shift at work. He was coming home to his wife and newborn daughter. That loss was absolutely devastating. Years later probably, let me think about this, this would have been uh, 11, 12, 13, 14 years later, she lost her husband of almost 60 years. And you can imagine that loss. But just two years later, she had to brace herself for the unexpected loss of her other son in his 50s. Here's what Mary Jane said. She said many amazing things. One of them was, that a dear member of her family came over and just sat with her in her room while she cried, did not say a word, did not try to do anything, did not try to make it better or take anything away. She simply sat there with her. Mm. The exquisite tenderness and intimacy of that moment. I'm overwhelmed with thinking about it. The other thing she said that I have heard repeated by people over and over and over and over again is, I said, Mary Jane, as years go by, does it get easier for you to deal with your losses? She said, Father, it doesn't get easier, but it gets softer. Hmm, aren't those powerful? It doesn't get easier, it gets softer. Do you know that I've repeated that to a few people who have um, experienced some terrible sort of loss, reminiscent of Mary Jane's, and if they've never had that thought before, as I say it to them, they close their eyes like they're eating a piece of chocolate cake or like they just heard a secret that changes everything. It doesn't get easier, it gets softer. Thank you, Mary-Jane Perseco. Those are three women who have experienced having something precious taken from them. I talked with two other people who experienced being given something unexpected, a wonderful blessing, but a blessing that came with a challenge. I talked with Lisa M., who talked with us generously about having a child at 17 years old unexpectedly and about what it was like to experience the judgment and exclusion of her peers and adult groups in that time and about how she wound up going from being the single mother of a child in her teens who then wound up marrying someone and blending her son into the family that he had from his previous relationship and then having another child with him. She talked very honestly about not realizing all that society did not allow her to experience in having a child out of wedlock as a teenager, that she only could have understood after having a child later in a marriage at a later stage of life. She said it wasn't until she had a baby the way that society accepts and endorses, that she realized how much exclusion and judgment and hardship there was looking back at the way she was treated the first time. She said something really remarkable that I really appreciated. She said, if you wanna say something kind or do something kind for a young mother, do not ask her, how old are you? She said the question that felt like nails on a chalkboard was, how old are you? When she would be playing with her son in a park, people enjoyed chatting with her and thought the world of her as long as they could imagine she was the nanny. But as soon as they said, how long have you been babysitting for this family? She'd say, oh no, I'm his mom. Their question was, how old are you? She even talked about her desire to not always be the teen mom that was being judged caused her to get into a very funny and confusing predicament because she was in college and very much admired one of her professors who liked her so much he said would you like to babysit for me and gave her the offer of having her babysit for his child on a certain night. On the night that she babysat for her professor's child he had no idea that she had to find child care for her own son. babysitting got in the way of her being home with her own son a secret that she did not want to tell him because she admired him so much and knew that he liked and admired her and did not want to jeopardize that what a powerful experience for a young person to have she was given the blessing of a baby but it came in a way that was harder than normal to carry That might be a fair description of what it was like for Kathy Amodio to go to the doctor and hear, you are going to be the mother of triplets, mother of triplets. And if you listen to that podcast episode, you know, oh my goodness, what a remarkable story. Of her three children, two of them have special needs, one with needs that are greater than the others. They are now adults in college. Her son with great special needs lives in a group home, which is a huge graduation from earlier stages of life for him. He's doing fantastically. And her two daughters are going to be going away to college this fall. Kathy learned how to advocate for her kids by recognizing that the only way to make sure that her triplets had what they needed, especially the ones with special needs, especially that son whose needs were so great. She said that she needed to be someone who believed with her whole heart that God would not give her more than she could handle. It was her belief that God had faith in her that caused her to rise and do whatever needed to be done at any given time. A lot of us talk about having faith in God. Kathy had to believe that God had faith in her. Oh, isn't that remarkable? Are you savoring these, these memories as much as I am? If you haven't heard that podcast, or Lisa's, or Caroline's, or Gina's, or Mary Jane's, I really recommend you go listen. Let's talk about those people who were faced with a choice, a fork in the road, uh, a crossroads that they had to decide, which way am I going to go? I'm thinking of the interview with Hugh and Peggy Quigley. Hugh was a business partner with Peggy's brother, his brother-in-law, and they ran Dynabil, which was a leading producer of airplane parts, very strategic parts of airplanes. So when September 11th hit, their business got hit too big because no one in aviation was building for a long time after September 11th. Well, Hugh and Peggy talked about how the inevitable decision came that they were going to have to lay off a third of the workers of the business. And Hugh and his brother-in-law got ready to make that announcement. But something happened. Something happened first. Hugh and Peggy went to church that weekend at St. Mary's Church right here in their hometown. And when they went to church, they looked around. And on the pews on their left, they saw the faces of workers from their business, Dinah who would be unemployed. They looked to the right and they saw families who were fed by the employment of someone in that family who worked for Dinah their business. And when they left, they said, we can't do this. It was a Sunday. The next day was the announcement of the layoffs. And they went back to the drawing board. And Hugh and his brother-in-law went back to their management team and said, come back with a plan 24 hours from now that shows what it would look like if we had no layoffs. And they said, you can't have no layoffs. You have to have layoffs. There's, your business won't survive. You have to have layoffs. And he said, no, no. I want to see what it looks like with no layoffs. They said, you can't do it. He said, anything is possible if you're willing. And so what were they willing to do? Give up their salary and ask everyone to take a cut to their salaries so that no one would have to be let go. It worked. It worked. And Hugh and his brother-in-law were honored as New York State Business Leaders of the Year in 2005. You will love this. It's such a rich conversation between one of those brothers-in-law and his wife who had sacrificed so much for that business and had been raising the family and helping to advise her husband and her sister's husband throughout that time. This interview is really inspiring. And you know, it came at the perfect time. Hugh and Peggy agreed to have that interview because they were so worried that other business owners would not realize that if they were willing to be creative, they could save people's jobs. I love the story of Hugh and Peggy going to church and being moved by an experience and allowing it to affect their actions. How many of us go to church and hear the message, but don't let it touch us? how many of us could just as easily fall asleep while in church when there is a challenge waiting for us, a new invitation being given to us from God? And maybe that's not going to even come in church. Maybe it will come in a conversation. Maybe it'll come in a special moment with someone. But how beautiful for the Quigleys to offer that to us. Another choice that comes to mind is the choice that young Dave Noon had to make before he was Father Dave Noon. Dave Noon has been ordained over 50 years now, but back in the 60s when he was in the seminary, just weeks before his ordination, his spiritual director told him that he was not priest material and that he should leave. He should not pursue ordination. Even though his family was coming over for their first trip out of the United States, even though he'd sacrificed for years, even though he was convinced that he was called and that this spiritual director who'd met with him weekly for years had never brought this up before. Dave Noon had to decide, what am I going to do with this information? And Dave Noon chose to be ordained. But he continued to pay a price for hearing that he was not worthy Because he was filled with such doubt, he said that his ordination was actually the worst day of his life. His ordination day was the hardest, most sickening, most difficult day of his entire life. He had to work through that and he had to experience a miracle where God's word came to him when he found an open bible on the altar rail of the church where he'd been serving for a couple of years that said you are david my servant whom i have anointed with oil whom i have chosen david heard the words you are david my servant whom i have anointed with oil which is what priests are anointed with whom i have chosen he said that by looking back over the 50 plus years of priesthood he's experienced, he said that he looks back and realizes that God always sent him people to guide him through each of the chapters. He said and it was often the people you don't expect. It wasn't the people in the center. It wasn't his best friends or the other priests in the assignment, though it could have been. It was almost always these people on the margins, people in the parish that you wouldn't have expected, people he wouldn't have noticed at first or maybe even not liked that much at first. They were the ones who got him through. Such a powerful and beautiful reflection on all these years of ministry. Thank goodness he made the choice to go ahead. And then thank goodness he made the choice to let go of what was limiting him. I am thinking of the people whose lives were changed by cataclysmic events. Did you hear the interview with Alan King? who was electrocuted one day while at work with enough energy to easily kill people. He he had a one in a million chance of surviving. He had very serious burns, third and fourth degree over a quarter of his body. He had a broken neck. He had a broken vertebrae. He had trouble in his back. He had a ruptured spleen. He had... 250 stitches worth of open wound on his head and he nearly died. He said that there were times in the burn unit where the pain on a scale of one to 10 was 150. He said something different than what Kathy Amodio said. Kathy said what got her through was always believing that God couldn't give more than she could handle so she would trust God. Alan said the phrase that got him through was, God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. He told us that when you're facing a challenge like that, don't try to do it by yourself. You won't be able. Instead, rely on the people with you. And he said there were people in the burn unit who had no one come to visit them, but they could rely on the nurses and the doctors. There's always someone to rely on. And he said that it was very important for him to realize that he did not have it as bad as many people. There were people who had it worse than him. And I said, Alan, how can you say worse than you when you were so burned over so much of your body, when your pain on a scale of one to 10 was 150? How can you say that? And he said, there were people that had it worse. He said, I had burns on a quarter of my body. There were people who had those kind of burns on their whole. Body. There was a teenager that touched him in the hardest kind of way. That teenager was 17. He lived with terrible burns in the burn unit for almost a year and then died. Alan's reflection was just remarkable, and it really changed the way that I look at what God could get me through if ever I needed to be taken beyond the very edge. Krista DeRosier talked about being a mom of four kids and contracting a very serious case of breast cancer. She said it was so serious that she didn't want to know the stage. She refused to be told the stage. Her way of working through this was believing that she could survive it. She told herself, As a mantra, stage one cancer contained to the left breast. Stage one cancer contained to the left breast. She refused to believe anything other than that, and she healed. It took a lot of radiation and chemo, and she told the tender story of how her sensitive daughter was unable to look at her when she had a scarf off of her head because the baldness was so upsetting to her young, sensitive daughter until the night that she was tucking her in, and kissing her, and her sweet daughter, Therese, pulled the scarf off of her head, and said, it's okay now, mom, it's okay. She was telling Krista, you may have cancer, and you may be bald, but you're still my mom, and I love you. Oh my, how about the story of the family of Allie Francesco? who in 1988 was in a catastrophic car accident the day before she began her senior year of high school. That young woman is now 48 years old and has been a non-verbal paraplegic throughout that time. We talked to her niece, Genevieve, who never remembers a life before Allie's accident. She was born far later. And she admired her Aunt Allie so much, she used to use a bedpan. She would let food drop onto her her clothes as she ate because she wanted to be like Aunt Allie. She wanted to be as close to Aunt Allie as possible. Every photo of her as a little girl is sitting on Aunt Allie's lap. The tenderness of her relationship with Allie and the way she talked about her was amazing hearing Allie's mom, Marie, talk about what it felt like to rearrange everything, to bring their daughter home, what it was like to reorder everything in life, and how she used affirmations and prayer to get her through. The things she shared about working through the pain of her teenage and and young 20 children's lives at the time. The things that she was able to to share about how to get through something so incredibly painful. The, The gentle way she told us that she'll never give up hope that Allie will speak again. She no longer holds it as an expectation, but she refuses to stop hoping. Her... Reflection on the difference between hope and expectation is something I'll never forget. And seeing how Genevieve, through the eyes of love, wanted to be like Aunt Allie, did not see a single disability in her, only saw love and ability was so tender. These people had their lives changed by events beyond their control and they rose to meet the challenge. And then I think about the people who are walking through life with something that cannot be changed and finding the serenity to accept what can't be changed, finding courage to change what they can and wisdom to know the difference. I'm thinking of Joan Lipscomb-Arthurton, the woman who grew up in Ravenna in the only black American family that was a registered parishioner at St. Patrick's Church. The Lipscums were beloved. And her mother, Joan, is continuing even to this day to be our sacristan for Mass. Joan, in her 80s, grew up in Ravenna with a mother who was so connected to her neighbors, she spoke fluent Italian in three dialects. It was remarkable to hear about Jenny, who was a pillar of the Baptist church, Riverview Baptist in Queenman's Landing, and how she raised her daughter Joan to have pride and dis- discover the unity that existed between her and the people of different races and ethnicities in their town. Because of Joan's strength, her daughter, Joan Marie, now Joan Arthurton, talked about how she was raised without experiencing prejudice the way that so many other Black Americans have. And she talked about the challenge that that presents in her life now, especially during this time when the statement Black Lives Matter is so important in the lives of everyone who is thirsting for justice so that we can finally overcome America's original sin of racism that has been foisted on us through no fault of our own, but through the history and legacy we have of people being owned as property. So one of the things that Joan talked about that was so powerful was her wondering at times, is she, and here come the air quotes, black enough? Because she hasn't experienced all of the racial tensions that other people have, Is she a part of the movement enough? Because she wasn't raised in the projects and doesn't have the kind of stories that so many other people have because of generations of institutionalized racism, is she connected enough to the struggle? Because her husband has stories of how difficult life can be in a racist culture where he is held in suspicion simply because of the color of his skin because she feels so much more shielded from that than he has been. Because her mother's experience in Queens was such a, a healthier and more shielded experience than her father's growing up in the South. Because of that, she wonders, am I black enough? It was a powerful interview. And it's uncomfortable at times to hear her talk about how she doesn't have the experiences that others do. And that it's uncomfortable to hear her say, I don't know always what the experience of others is because I was sheltered and given so much love and taught that I could do anything that I set my mind to. It's also really beautiful to know that the St. Patrick's community gave her a childhood like that. And that that means if we are able to figure out racial unity, even in the most divided decades of the 20th century, we can figure out how to live better together now in the year 2020. I'm thinking of Joan Spelter, the 91-year-old woman who talked about walking with anxiety. She experienced an onset of her mental illness, this anxiety disorder in her 20s that left her paralyzed with fear. But she went to support groups called Recovery International. And when she was there, she realized that after a few months of meetings, she was going home one day on the subway and realized that she allowed a full five minutes to pass by without being obsessed by her anxieties and fears. She was thinking about other things on the train for just a few minutes. And then she said this incredible phrase, if I could experience five minutes of peace, I can experience a lifetime of peace. I am healing. If I can experience five minutes, I can experience more. People are talking about this interview over and over. I'm hearing it everywhere. People are just in awe of her. And I'm so excited that so many people have researched Recovery International. Some people in our parish who've been going through a hard time have actually begun attending Zoom meetings because of it. One of the things that she said that convinced me that Recovery International has so much to offer all of us, she said, my... Emotions that I was experiencing were extremely distressing, but were utterly harmless. They were the harmless indication of a nervous imbalance. There was no danger there. Oh, those words. Think about the last time you really were overtaken with your emotions. My emotions. Say that to yourself. This was extremely distressing, but utterly harmless. It was just the expression of an imbalance I was experiencing. There is no danger here. Ah, oh, such a powerful statement. And then I think of the wonderful Seth man who opened up his heart so vulnerably to us and talked about his long journey with the disease of alcoholism. The thing I will never forget from Seth's interview was him talking about rock bottom and about the humility that comes from having reached one rock bottom and then another that was lower and then another that was even lower. And what he said, I will never forget. Every rock bottom has a trapdoor. Every rock bottom has a trapdoor. There's lower you can go. Every single time that you think you've reached as low as you could go, there's actually lower. You could go if you don't choose to surrender. I am so moved to hear him say that because it reminds me of the humility that is needed to never believe that any of us in recovery can think, I've got this. I've got this. I've got this under control. I used to have a problem, but now I don't. No, no. No, there's always a trap door. You could always leave the plateau that you've been on and go to a lower place. He talked about how it was finding recovery through the remarkable 12 steps that he was given a life beyond his wildest dreams and that he spends every day in gratitude that his disease brought him to the place that he is in. Some of these folks were given something. Others had something taken. Some faced an impossible choice. Others had no choice. A circumstance changed everything forever. Some of them have to walk with an experience that others don't understand. Oh my goodness. At the end of each of these interviews, I was in awe of how people shared from the deepest place in themselves. And we always end each interview with three questions, three questions to let people have a chance to say what they are feeling about some common experiences. Question number one, some people say everything happens for a reason. Do you think that's true? What a remarkable range we heard from the folks who said, No way. No way. Things don't happen for a reason. They just happen. God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we're given. Other people said, Every single thing comes from the hand of God. If it is happening, just know it is okay. And in the big picture, all will be well. These people all had wisdom to share, but they all looked at that question differently. This is why we've done so much thinking about what loss does to us. And the thing that all of these losses have in common is that people made meaning out of them. Does everything happen for a reason? We don't know, but everything happens for a meaning because we get to determine what the meaning is in a situation. I'd like to ask you that question. Does everything happen for a reason? How about the next question? What do you think is the key to practicing the virtue of endurance? What's the key habit, the key strength? What's the the tool in the toolbox that most allows enduring? How about the last question? What are your best hopes for life after coronavirus? What are your best hopes of where we could be headed? Friends, I am in awe of what I heard in this first part of this new opportunity to share the strength of parishioners. And I've gotta tell you one of the things that I love the best about it. This interview series, does not involve me standing up and preaching. I, as the clergy person, do not get to be in the center of attention. Instead, I ask the questions. And it is the wisdom of the parishioners that leads us forward. I don't know as much as these people know. These people are me. So I wanna just thank all of and 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 thank you for being willing to go on this journey. One of the things I've heard from listeners is that the episodes are coming a bit too quickly, almost like the episode of I love Lucy where Lucy and Ethel suddenly have to start putting bonbons in their mouth because they can't get them all off of the assembly line in time. Well, That is a fair thing for people to say because the richness of these interviews makes them so that it's hard to to have them all in one sitting. Sometimes they're excruciatingly beautiful and you have to pause and ponder and cherish. So we're going to start changing the rhythm just a little bit and spacing them out just a little bit more so that you can enjoy them. We're also going to give you a chance to catch up because a lot of people have said, I'm only halfway through. And so we're going to take an opportunity to to slow the rhythm down so that you can make sure that you've gotten to hear each of these people and then prepare for the ones ahead because we've got some beautiful interviews coming up with people who have gone through incredible physical challenges, people facing hard spiritual challenges, people having emotional hurt and people who are learning to live with things that are unchangeable. So let us close by just asking God to grant us the serenity, to accept everything in life that we can't change, the courage to change the things we can, the wisdom to know the difference, and the grace to keep enduring through coronavirus and everything else. God bless you.